Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. All right, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Romans chapter 5, if you're new to the scriptures, uh, the Bible is basically split into two sections. You have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. The Old Testament tells the story of God uh, before Christ and his plan on redeeming the world from sin, from pain, from death. Uh, the New Testament, we see the fullness of that plan come in Jesus Christ. Jesus tells, the New Testament tells the story of Jesus. And then it also tells the story of Jesus' ascension. And then uh, the church, it tells the story of the church, of the, the, this new group of believers kind of scattered throughout um, uh, the Mediterranean at the time, and uh, the spread of the gospel and how it, how it, uh, it went to many different places. And so we're going to be in a book called Romans today. That's in the New Testament. And Romans is a letter. It's less a book, and it's really a letter to the church in Rome, one of these new uh, church plants, uh, these groups, this, this group of people in Rome following Jesus. Now, um, last week, I told you guys something. I said that that was going to be the last sermon in the discipleship series, I don't think I lied, I just didn't tell the whole truth, okay? Uh, I felt like God kind of put something on my heart that was of interest this week, and I felt like it really concluded and wrapped up this discipleship series. So, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 15. Go ahead and stand to your feet for the reading of Scripture, and uh, let's read. Romans 5, verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Let me read that last verse one more time. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and grab a seat. You know, from the very beginning of uh, this discipleship series, we have said two things. We have said that discipleship is the relational journey of making your identity visible. Discipleship is the relational journey of making your identity visible, which means your commitment to Christ must look like something physical in your life. 
that free gift of righteousness that this passage is talking about, that when God goes to the cross, he dies, he's resurrected, and you say, I need that. I need that. I've tried everything else. I need that. He goes, here's a gift of righteousness. I'm giving you a whole new identity. That identity has to look like something. And the second thing that we've said throughout this series is that discipleship is aimed at producing a specific kind of person. It's aimed at producing unafraid sons and daughters able to rule in love alongside Christ for the renewal of the world. This has kind of become almost like a vision statement of the whole series that we've been in. Discipleship is aimed at producing unafraid sons and daughters able to rule in love alongside Christ for the renewal of the world. Now, I want to do something this morning. I want to dig deep into two implications of this passage. Paul is essentially building foundational theology for humans, for all of humans. And here's what he's saying. He's saying all humans, when they are born, they get no choice in the matter. They are born into the reign of death. All humans... They don't get a choice in the matter. When they are born, they are born into the reign of death. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, you know, it keeps on talking about the trespass of the one man. Who is that? That's Adam. Because of his sin not to trust God and to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, notice his language in this. He says, because of that trespass, many died. Through the trespass of that one man, that one choice, death reigned through that one man. So here's what I'm saying. You are born human. When you're born human, which all of you were born human, death reigns. Death reigns. All humans live under this horrible master called death. Now, what does that practically mean? What am I getting at? What does that practically mean? What that means is that all humans are born with eternity in their hearts but the weight of mortality on their shoulders. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. So we're born with this desire for eternity, and that's what makes the weight of mortality so heavy, so heavy. All of our lives are filled with these hints and these notions of death, from sickness, chronic sickness or the common cold, to actual death, the losing of a loved one or of a close friend, to sin, all speak of the rule of death. Because isn't, you know, you think about it, isn't that what sin is? Like, what is sin? Sin is the evidence of present death. What is sin? It's evidence of the rule of death. You know, you think about it in in the first couple chapters of the Bible. Without sin, there's no death. Adam and Eve could have lived forever with God. Without sin, there's no death. So sin is the reminder of what is reigning. Sin is the reminder of death. Now, here's why this is important. You're like, where is he going with this? Here's why this is important. We're all born into this reign of death. And when people experience death, they experience loss, they go through pain, they experience sin done to them or done by them, most people respond in one of two ways. Most people respond in one of two ways. They attempt to ignore death. They're just like, I'm just not even going to think about it. They avoid the sin of other people. They don't confront them on it. They avoid their own sin. They don't think about it. They lie to themselves. They try to ignore it. 
or they try to outrun it. They try to outrun it. They try to mask it. They try to, you know, if I could just look a little bit younger, right? We have a whole industry basically devoted to people trying to avoid death, avoid that reign of death. And so through pleasure, through accomplishment, through accolades or the approval of others, we try to avoid this rule of death from the trespass of that one man. And while on the outside, you know, the image that we can project in life, while it may seem like we have amassed this beautiful life or this wealthy life or this interesting life, we are really serving death. What do I mean? Well, if your whole life is set up to avoid death, to avoid its rule, then you are actually serving death. If all of your decisions and all of your choices are because you're trying to avoid the consequences of death, then death is still in charge. Then death is still your master. Are you following me? So Paul says this to us. He says in in Romans chapter 12, he says, you know, you should be transformed through the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. And what I'm saying is the primary pattern of this world. What is the pattern of this world? It is normalizing death and rationalizing self-medication. What is the pattern of this world? Is Everybody goes through fear. Everybody goes through pain. Everybody faces the reign of death. And what do we do? We normalize it. And we rationalize self-medication. Remember when I first, I was in high school when somebody who I actually knew and was close to passed away. The first time I'd ever experienced death. And I remember just thinking, this can't be. This is so not right. How could this have happened? I was shocked by death. And as we get older, we sort of lose the shock. And we begin to become okay with it. And we begin to become okay with the sin around us or the sin done to us or the sin done by us. And we begin to rationalize all the self-medication that it takes to mask that pain that death has caused. And so then what should never have become an identity becomes just that. I hear many say, I have anxiety and depression. That's just a fact of life. That will forever be the case. Or I'm an angry person. It's just a fact. Or I'm just really sexual. It's just a fact. Or I'm a victim because this happened in my life. It's just a fact. Well, no, it isn't. You see, everybody in the world looks the same. Because everyone is conforming to the same pattern of this world by finding identity in their dysfunction and identity in their self-medication. And I'm telling you, you take on an identity of dysfunction in this passage will never make sense to you. It will never, it will be the most confusing passage in the New Testament. Look, I have a burden this morning. This is what I feel like God put on my heart this week. I am so tired of seeing weak Christians bowled over by life, afraid to speak the truth, rationalizing sin. Like, I'm so tired of it. We were created to reign in life. We were created from Genesis chapter 1 to rule. And yet so many of us, the reign of death is evident. We're full of fear. We're afraid to tell the truth. We rationalize sin in our lives and in the lives of our friends. And it is a far cry 
from being more than a conqueror. That's what we're called to. So look, you're like, does he not have any compassion for dysfunction? No, no, no. I have plenty of compassion for dysfunction. In fact, that's what Paul is saying. You were born under Adam. You didn't pick it. It's not even your fault. You were born into dysfunction. You were born into a dysfunctional world. But what Paul is saying is this. He's saying through this passage, he's staring us in the face and he's saying, it need not be the case. You might be surviving in life. You might be scraping by in life. You may even be bored in life. But you were made for more. You were made to reign in life. You were made to rule in life. Look back down at verse 17 one more time. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? You were made to reign. So here's what I want to do this morning. As a, as a way of imparting courage to you, it's been the, the theme from the very beginning of, the, of this morning, as a way of imparting courage to you, as rebuilding your foundation, as strengthening yourself in the Lord, I want to walk through the three marks of the disciple who reigns in life. And with each of these, there's going to be a declaration. You know how powerful it is when you declare something, you come into alignment. You know, it's one thing to hear the truth. It's one thing to read the truth. It's another thing to say, I'm going to own the truth. That's my truth. That's going to be for me, and I'm going to declare that that's going to be true in my life. Jesus, you said this is, this is the truth. I'm not experiencing it, so I'm going to begin by bringing my mouth into alignment with what you've already said. So powerful. So with each one of these, there's going to be an impartation through declaration. Okay, firstly, disciples who reign in life are unafraid to die. Disciples who reign in life are unafraid to die. Here's one of the most famous things that Jesus ever said to his disciples. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. If you remember, the context of this passage was Peter attempting to stop Jesus from going to the cross. Remember Jesus, he's in, uh, he asks his disciples, you know, who do you say, who do people say that I am? And everybody's like, oh, they have this take on you, they have this take on you. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, he speaks up, he's the bold one in the group, and he says, you're the Messiah. In other words, all of the history of Israel has been pointing and leading to you. What an incredible thing to say. You're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, I'm building my church on this man and his confession. Okay. Now, what happens next is pretty interesting. So Peter goes from this moment of like, this is, you know, it's, it's like a high watermark for a disciple to Jesus to say, I'm going to build my church on you. That's, I would say that'd be a pretty good day as a disciple. So he goes from that to, uh, Jesus then says, it says, from that time forward, Jesus began to say, you know, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be killed and crucified, actually. And, and Peter says, by no means, Lord, is that going to happen to you? And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. He says, you are thinking earthly. You do not have the thoughts of God. Now, isn't that interesting? Then he says to him and the rest of his disciples, he says, look, I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture. If you're going to be a disciple, you're going to have to die. Jesus says to his disciples who are afraid of death, no, don't talk about death stuff, Jesus. He says to them, look, if you want to be my disciple, you are going to have to stare the very thing you fear most in the face, the reign of death, and you are going to have to choose to die. You want to be my disciple? All of your self-preservation, 
Deny yourself. All the project self that you're building, this life that you're trying to amass for yourself, it must be laid down to attempt to preserve as much of this life as possible, to avoid telling the truth that will draw persecution, to be religious to the point that it benefits you, but no further is demonic thinking. Get behind me, Satan. And he says, you live in fear and self-medication, and you will always know that you are missing what you were designed to be. So what should you do? You should look at the very thing that you fear most, death, and you should die. You should die. You should give up your self-preservation. And if you lose your life, then you will find it. And when you do that, when you say that managing death is no way to live, that trying to tiptoe around it is no way to live, I'm going to die for Christ. I'm going to pick up my cross. I'm going to follow him. I'm not going to try to preserve as much of this life as possible. And you say the only way from out from under this reign of death is through the resurrection of Christ. The Bible says this, that you get resurrected. How could it say that? Are you resurrected right now? Physically, no. Theologically, yes. How? (laughs) Because God does not live in time and space. He's in our future, and he's saying, yes, they got resurrected. He's He's not bound by time and space. So he can say, yep, those who put their trust in me, they were resurrected. What an incredible thing. So you don't need to be afraid of anything. You do what Jesus says in this passage. You follow him and you say, I'll take up my cross. I'm not going to build a life for myself. I'm going to simply follow you. I'll take up my cross and I will never miss an opportunity to die. I will never miss an opportunity to crucify my flesh. I'll never miss that opportunity. You do that and you know what happens? You can really live now because you're not afraid. You know, there's nothing, it says that we're, we're, we're to reign in life. There is nothing less royal than living not to die. There is nothing less royal than living not to die. I noticed this the other day. Um, my wife's, uh, side, her side of the family is, um, they're like all war heroes, essentially. They're like, there's like four generals and they all are like, you know, these very impressive military people. And they, I'd never heard this story, but her grandmother's uncle, uh, who we, have, we never met, um, we heard this story about him this week that we'd never heard before, that he was this ace pilot in World War II, this very courageous man, and that he actually, in a dogfight, so Emily's like, he was fighting dogs, I'm like, no, like in a plain dogfight, like he was shot down by a German over some ocean, and he died when he was a young man. I'd never heard this story before. I thought, wow, that's amazing. You know, I began to ponder it. I looked at pictures of him, and I thought to myself, you know, there is a very big difference between him and me. He had such courage, and I would just be shaking. I couldn't do it. Now, maybe you would, you'd say, well, how did he get that courage? You'd think, well, it was, it was manipulation by a government or something like that. That's how he got the courage. They told him he's going to have these, the, you know, these images of glory in his life if he were to do this thing, and so they manipulated him. Or maybe you would think, it's just youthful delusion. He didn't really know what he was doing, and so that's why he you know, did all these risky things. Or perhaps, or perhaps, the source of his courage was that he had something to live for, and so he didn't live not to die. Maybe he had actually something to live for, and so his whole life wasn't centered around, how do I not die? How many of us, our whole lives are around, how do I not die? 
All of COVID exposed this. How do I not die? We live not to die. We live that way because deep down we believe that this is all that there is. It's theological. We believe that this is all that there is and that this is as good as it gets. And this thinking, I want to kill it today, it has disastrous results. Instead of looking to God as our judge one day when we do die, because we're all going to die, instead of accepting that and looking to God as our judge, we look to people around us to be our judge. We fear what people think about us instead of fearing God. Instead of looking to the heavenly city, we do what we can to build utopia now. Why is utopianism so common today? It's common today because people don't believe in God, and they don't believe that there is a future judgment, and they don't believe that there is a heavenly city. They don't believe there is a new heavens and a new earth, and so they do everything they can to manipulate and control the people around them to get utopia now. And here's what this has meant for the church. Like, here's where the rubber meets the road, I I think for me and, and probably for you too. We then don't preach repentance of sin in the West because we are so wealthy and we are so fat that most of us fear heaven more than we want heaven. Most of us don't look forward to heaven we don't look forward to death and to being with Christ. When, you know, I, I, Paul says, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And most of us is like, to live is to survive and to die is to lose everything. And we call ourselves Christians. Christians have a hope. Christians have a future. We need not be afraid. And so then we don't tell the truth. <laughs> Because we fear people. We think that history is going to judge us. Have you ever heard that term? History is going to judge you on this. You know what that just simply means? People are going to judge you. You know what that is? A demonic lie. History doesn't judge. God's writing history. God judges, not people. So then because we fear what people think more than we fear them going to hell, we don't tell them the truth. We are not afraid of people going to hell in our culture. We have this kind of libertarian Christianity mindset of like, it's cool if my culture goes to hell because it's just uncomfortable for me to actually tell people the truth, to speak against immorality and to stand for something. We have a lot of weak-kneed Christians today. And there's a strengthening that needs to take place by saying, I'm not gonna be judged by you. You might be angry. You might write a post online. You might, you know, quote me in your, in your article as I did something, you know, I did something horrible. No, like, we need to stand on truth. We need to stand on truth because we have a real judge and we have a real future. It's God. It's the heavenly city. It's all because we're afraid to die. So, so here, here's where this connects. The one who reigns in life is unafraid of death so they can tell the truth. They can't be controlled by people because they're getting resurrected by God who is their judge. You know, in Romans, it says that God is both, he's just. In other words, he is the standard, but he is also the one who justifies. And there's so many believers that we bow to culture, we bow to people, friends in our lives even. We bow to them, and they're not the one who justifies. They may, you may feel like they're your judge, but they are not the one who's going to get on the cross, and die for you. There was only one who did that. I've been, um, through my counseling, just like getting rid of the fear of people, getting rid of the fear of what people think. And I've just been saying every morning, my judge is God, not people. My judge is God, not people. I, I, to be honest, like I had arranged my life at times in ways where I was, 
I was palatable to the people around me, but there was a, there was a, um, a suspicion that I was not palatable to God. I'd become palatable to the people around me, tolerating of their sin, but that one day I would actually stand before God and I wasn't really sure if he was totally satisfied with how I had lived. My judge resurrected me. What do I have to fear? So, first declaration. Put your hand on your heart. Let's declare this together. I'm not afraid to die. I'm getting resurrected. So I will have courage in this life to tell the truth that leads to freedom. What a beautiful reality. All right, you feel that? Okay. This one's less convicting, I promise. Uh, Secondly, the disciple who reigns in life knows I am a powerful child. I'm a powerful child. Notice what leads to reigning in life in this passage. It says, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who, and here's the key phrase right here, receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life. When your whole life is organized towards the singular goal that I'm going to live off God's grace and I'm going to receive the identity of being a righteous son or daughter, guess what happens? You get to be a child. And you get to be a powerful child. Now, we've spent a good time on this a couple weeks back, so I'm not going to spend too much time here. But I want to say this. The lack of confidence that I see in believers, I believe, is from a twisted sense of humility. It's from a twisted sense of humility. Jesus didn't pay with his blood for you to think that you're a loser. Like, he didn't give his blood for you to go through your life and just think, I'm a loser. I'm never going to do anything great. You know, it's not humility to put down God's workmanship, to believe that you're worthless or that you're not going to do anything great. You were designed to do awesome things. You were designed to do incredible things. That's what you were designed to do. And so it's not humility to disagree with God's words about you, with what his blood says about you, with what his grace means for you. That's not humility. That's disobedience. It's disobedience. You know, imagine this. Imagine there's a dad who's at his, uh, you know, son or daughter's basketball game. And every time his kid gets the ball and they take a shot, he's whispering to the people around him. He's like, I would have made that. (laughs) They're so bad. Or, yeah, um, right there, you know, they should have passed it over there. I I try to tell them, but they just don't listen. Or, yeah, you know, um, I... I don't miss my free throws. That's not something that I do. So, man, they're really bad. No, what kind of parent does that? Not a good parent. (laughs) A really insecure parent. No, what a parent does is, that's my daughter. That's my daughter. That's mine. That's my son. They're mine. Why? Because children reveal the glory of their parents. Children reveal the glory of their parents. So you were designed to be awesome. Not so that you can be like, look at how awesome I am. No, so that you can go, I'm revealing the awesomeness, the glory of the God who created me. I was created. I was bought with blood. I I, I was given this, this identity of righteous child. I am powerful in this life. God listens to what I say. It says in, in Psalm 25, he shares his secrets with those who fear him. I've entered a relationship where God wants to tell me stuff and communicate with me, and he wants to reveal his glory through me. How powerful. You know, there's, there's several creation myths that come from Mesopotamia around the same time that Genesis is written. And in each of these creation myths, 
for uh, the reason for creating humans, the reason why humans are on the earth is to be subjugated by gods, to be used, to be put down, to clean up God's mess. But Genesis is this radical account. Humans were made to be the very image of God on earth. In other words, you want to know what God's like, look at humans. How powerful. Do you, do you see yourself that way? You don't. Okay. Uh, you should. What privilege. What an incredible privilege. So it's no wonder that in your life the enemy comes and he says, make an identity instead from what you lack. Make an identity instead from what's wrong with you. Take that dysfunction and own it. Man, take that pain, that illness, that limitation, and build your identity on that. You're a victim. No wonder the enemy comes and he says to you, you are your mistakes. Your sin defines you. You are your sin. It's not just something you did that the blood of Christ can take care of. No, It's who you are. Why is this so common? Because it completely undermines the intention of God. And what is Satan? He's a thief. He he steals. He destroys, right? And when we, what what has happened in the church is that we've then sanctified this voice in our life by calling a low view of self humility. No, that's not humility. It's humility to agree with God. It's humility to say, what you say about me, I'm going to say about me. I'm not comparing myself to others, and that's where I get my worth. No, that's pride. That's pride. What is true humility? True humility is, I will say what you're saying. That's who I am. You were designed to reign in life. All right, second, declaration. Put your hand over your heart. Let's read this out together. I won't allow any voice but God's to tell me who I am. I will not accept an identity that is less than royal son or royal daughter. I am righteous by the gift of God, and I am a partner with him in renewing his world. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. All right, lastly, the disciple who reigns in life knows I don't need to control others to be okay. This is a big one. I don't need to control others for me to be okay. Our world has a problem, and this is the problem. My interior world is so weak that I must arrange my exterior world in order to affirm my perceptions of self. You didn't catch that. The problem in our world, you look at it like, why is our culture so crazy? This is the problem, because everybody, nobody knows who they are. So they say, my interior world is so weak that I must arrange the voices in my exterior world to affirm my perception of self. That's the problem. All identity politics are built on this. I must be recognized in order for me to be okay. You must see me, my preferences, who I believe I am in order for me to be okay. And what I'm saying is that that is a road to a weak, weak life. A very weak life. Because what you have to do then is you have to control the people around you in order for you to feel full. And that is self-preservation. The disciple who reigns in life knows This is what they know. I don't need to organize my exterior world to feel full in my interior because I don't live from the outside in. I live from the inside out. 
Cheesy but true. I don't live from the outside in. In other words, I don't look at all of the various data points in my environment about who I should be and then become that internally. Every believer knows that God has come to make his home in you, and if he's come to make his home in you, that's going to come out of you. You're, you're, You're getting confused about which direction you live from. See, most people, they live lives of reaction and control. Things happen around them, and so their whole lives is react to this, 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 and all the while, they're being formed and they're becoming someone just by doing that. And they're trying to control this situation over here and control this person over here, and if only those people would say this, and if only these people would say that. And so then they are bowled over by small offenses. That's what happens. There's these small offenses that happen, and they destroy them. And their whole internal world is then dictated by their environment. But the mark of a disciple is fullness internally that isn't drained by small offenses. I remember the first time I learned this, I'd been a Christian for maybe, I don't know, maybe a couple years. And this described me. My, my internal world was a complete mess. I, was, I, I would be whoever I was around. That's who I was. Whoever I'm around, that's who I become. And so my environment really mattered. The way that I was treated really mattered. It felt like it told me who I was. I remember I became a Christian, and so much of that changed. I was driving down down, uh, the highway one day, and I I don't really remember exactly what happened, but anyways, there was a traffic altercation. We'll just say that. There was an altercation, and this guy ended up kind of pulling up alongside me, yelling at me, and flipping me off. Now, Alex, before Christ, I would have been like, he took something from me. I'd been mad. I'd been like, how dare you disrespect me like that? How dare my external world give me this message about who I am? And I would have been angry. But I remember doing this, almost this like calculation of sorts. I remember I wasn't, uh, I wasn't bothered by, by this guy flipping me off at all because I realized that I was filled with something that even he couldn't take. He couldn't take it from me. So I'd been spending time reading the scriptures. I'd been spending time in prayer. I'd been spending time finding out what God thought about me. And because I was so full with what God thought about me, I, my environment, what my environment thought about me mattered way, way less. When you see, when you see the abundant provision of grace, you will begin to live from fullness instead of lack, and you realize, I don't need to control people for me to be okay. I'm secure in what God thinks about me, so then, get this, I'm free to then free other people. I don't need to control them, I can free them, right? I'm able to set people around me free to experience the consequences of their own actions because I believe that God will judge and he will draw them to himself in his wisdom. It may seem simple. This may seem like a very simple idea, but I believe this is the pinnacle of reigning because this is the example that Jesus gave us. He was so full full of the fullness of heaven that he could take the hits of earth. He could lay his life down because he knew where he was from. He knew where he was going. He knew what the Father had given him. So lastly, let's declare this over ourselves. I am free to free others because of the love of God. I am full because of his abundant provision of grace. You know, um, hopefully that blessed you. You know, out of every uh, sermon series that we've done at, uh, here at Saints Hill, I think this sermon series has borne the most fruit, at least immediately. 
I've had a conversation with many of you. In fact, I just had another one right before um, I came up here. Uh, of people just, th- these are just things that people have told me. They've, they've experienced freedom mentally in their thought life. Uh, they, they've had idols that they've had for years. They've dumped them. They've had clarity around living for God and what that means for them, a desire to go deeper with God. And there's been kind of a wave almost of a real repentance, real mind change, life change, repentance. And I believe this whole series, guys, God has been discipling us. He's been discipling us, but not only for our personal freedom. How many of you guys understand? When, you're, when you are discipled by God, it's wonderful personally. But he has been discipling us in order to feed Newburgh. He has been discipling us in order to feed the people around us that we encounter, friends, family, coworkers. And so I believe that we must reign in life because God will use a royal representation here on earth for the humanity of Newburgh to taste what their future could be should they repent and turn from sin and turn to him. We are here in Newburgh. This church is here. Like, this is part of the very founding vision of this church. We are here to be the fruit of Newburgh's future. We are here to exist to be the fruit of Newburgh's future. You know, there's this um, moment in the conquest of Cana where this takes place. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread bread, and roasted grain. Notice this. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. It's that last line that has always struck me. Just think about this. They are on the border. They're not in the promised land yet. They are on the border of the promised land, about to enter, and they spend a whole year in that place eating the promised land's food. Why? They're not in the promised land yet. Why are they eating the promised land's food? Why? Why not keep eating manna? Why does God give them a future taste now? A future blessing tasted in the present. Why? Because God was helping his people acquire a palate for the new place that he was taking them. There was a season of experiencing all that their future would hold. This is what the land is like. This is what you're aiming for. And what I'm saying is this. I believe that God is developing a people in our church who reign in life, a courageous people who become a taste of what is possible for humanity in Christ. Unafraid sons and daughters, able to rule for the sake of a renewed valley. That's why we're discipled. Let's stand. I want to pray for you. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.